It is certainly a blessed privilege that each of us have been given today. We've already had mentioned in our hearing previously the list of those who are suffering illness in their families. And certainly as we each can be thankful for the degree of health that we enjoy, though the weather may be somewhat chilly, nonetheless we have a warm place in which we can meet here. And during that time to devote our attention to the things of eternal import, to the things which will lead us down the primrose pathway to heaven divine. Ever since the first Sunday in the month of January, we have devoted our attention to a consideration of some matters related to the church. During that time, we have sought to gain a deeper understanding and a better appreciation for those things that relate to that blessed and powerful body. We shall continue that consideration and study today. Might I make mention just by way of a brief review we have learned that the church is in fact the kingdom of God. As such, it is the body of Christ on earth and those which are members of it are the saved. We came to understand that though the church was spoken of in prophecy, it was nonetheless started at a definite place, Jerusalem, at a definite time, the first Pentecost following Christ's resurrection, and has been in existence since then. Furthermore, it is undenominational. It is the singular body of Christ. With all of that being appreciated to this point, we have, in fact, another consideration today. As you noticed in the title just briefly a moment ago, what about the government of this body, the government of the church? Can we also understand that this too would serve as an identifying mark, a characteristic that can heighten and deepen our understanding of this blessed body? Over the next few moments, I would ask that you, Proceed on a journey with me through the Word of God and consider alike the nature of the government of the church. I might mention by way of beginning that men have throughout the centuries had many ideas about the government of various religious organizations and religious bodies. Their intent and interest today is not the thought of men. In fact, that is not the central thrust at all, but rather we would wish to know what has God decreed about the government of the church, its leadership, if you will. And hence, would you think with me about this? First of all, what is the importance of leadership? A simple consideration, I think, will help us understand that this is no light subject, and it's not one to be looked upon with a degree of triviality. God has always, and we might well emphasize always, with regard to divine matters, stated the need and importance of appropriate government and leadership. In fact, turning back with me to the children of Israel, when his people were yet in Egyptian bondage, and yet he had heard their groanings and their cries in Exodus 2, 23-25, he at that moment decreed and made plans for the calling of a man named Moses. And in the next chapter, we might remember that Moses was spoken to through a burning bush that was not consumed. And on that occasion, God, in fact, in Exodus 3, verses 9 and 10, expressly made note to him, Moses, I shall send thee unto the king, to the Pharaoh, and thou shalt bring forth my people out of Egypt. Isn't it interesting that God had selected the one who would be a leader, the one who would exemplify and provide the necessary guidance? Later in the inspired sermon on that subject, the great man Stephen referred back to that same idea. In Acts chapter 7, verses 34 and following, 
as Stephen made reference to the occupation of Moses, he there said that Moses was their ruler and their deliverer. There could be no question that God had hand-selected a man named Moses to be the chief one to lead and to guide his people out of Egyptian bondage. It would seem that God recognized the powerful role of leadership and desired that the leadership be appropriate and strong. We might also understand, though, there was more than one occasion when Moses' leadership was challenged we learn a tremendous lesson when we remember how God responded. In Numbers chapter 16 and 17, we will recall that there are three people whose names live today in his names of infamy, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They had the brilliant idea, or so they thought, that in fact Moses was not the only one who could necessarily lead the people. In fact, it was their thought that others were equally able to provide the necessary leadership, and others besides Aaron could be the necessary leaders in terms of high priests. God, however, responded to that by opening earth and swallowing those rebels completely. You see, God had selected and chosen his leader and there was to be no rebellion against him. Moses had the very decree of God as the authorized leader of the children of Israel. There was to be no others filling that role. However, as the time of Moses' death approached, God understood that it was necessary for another person to take Moses' place after he died. Following that death of Moses in Deuteronomy 34, we note that in the very next chapter, Joshua chapter 1, God had hand-selected and had Moses prepare Joshua to control and to take the leadership position, and that he did. For God directly spoke to Joshua and said, Now Moses, my servant, is dead. You, Joshua, lead this people over the Jordan into the promised land that I shall give thee. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. A new leader had now arisen. The horizon was clear we began to see that leadership was important amongst Israel. For we understand even today that any organization, if it has not sufficient leadership, adequate leadership, it will suffer failure, it will suffer ineffectiveness. Perhaps even confusion will reign. Consider another biblical example. What about the family? Even in the friendly confines of the family, it was the will of the Almighty God of heaven for there to be an established and understandable leadership position. We notice in texts such as Colossians 3.18 and Ephesians 5.23 that the husband is the head of the wife. And furthermore, that that is fit in the Lord. To say that we understand that it was God's will then that even in the family there was to be leadership, and as that leadership was as God would have it, that family would be as God would have it. And it would be a blessing not only to the members thereof, but to all who would be aware of and pay attention to that which occurs in it. To speak then of the family, we might ask the same questions that could have been asked of ancient Egypt. What about when that authority is rebelled against? Would God look kindly upon that? Remember that when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram challenged Moses and Aaron, God was not pleased with the possibilities, and he ended that rebellion almost as quickly as it began. And so it is in the family. It's God's will that that husband be the head of the wife, and if that family is to be as God would have it, it should remain so. 
these two have perhaps pointed us to a text in 1 Corinthians where we have some descriptions given us of the Almighty God of heaven. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, as the Apostle Paul addressed that church in Corinth, he was addressing a church that had difficulties and problems. There was division and confusion. And in the midst of all of that, especially concerning the gifts of the Spirit, those miraculous gifts, Paul said, God is not the God of confusion. There is one thing that's absolutely certain, and that is where confusion reigns, it is not of God. The very last verse of that chapter amplifies that thought by saying, let all things be done decently and in order. Even our worship then, if it is to be pleasing unto God, should be done decently, it should be done in order, and that premise is such that it is always descriptive of God. As we consider that very thought then, note what would occur in an organization if it lacked leadership? If each one did what was right in his own eyes, what happened to ancient Israel in Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25 when they each did what was right in their own eyes? It was one of the darkest days in Israel's history. It was one of the saddest and almost sickening times to consider in all of Israel's history. And the thought was that each man did what was right in his own eyes. We then see that even today when an organization does not have that effective and strong and uncompromising leadership, they set themselves up first to fail in accomplishing their mission. And what's more, it may often be characterized by great sadness in terms of confusion, in terms of infighting, in terms of avarice one to the other. As we think about the church, our Lord had said, I will build my church. Had he made any plans for leadership within it? Is there any specified government in the New Testament for that body? Or are each one just left to whatever he or she may prefer and like? We may well understand the premise of Proverbs 29.18, that namely where there is insufficient vision or where no vision is, there's confusion in every evil work. Thus, what about the leadership of the church? What about its government? As we note some of the things contained in these ideas, our thought, of course, again, is what the Bible has to say about the church's government. We are not interested in men's ideas. And to be sure, men have had many. Throughout the various ages since the New Testament era began, men in his own wisdom have often presented ideas for the government of various religious bodies, and in that process a whole host of them have arisen. We might well in fact note that many of the governments of religious bodies are patterned exactly after civil government. Consider this with me. You and I well know that there is a local government here in Cookfield. Cookfield's the county seat of Putnam County. There's a local set of governments in terms of county commissioners or within the city limits. There's a mayor and alderman. But at the next level, there's a state government. Our governor is Phil Bredesen for the state of Tennessee, and each county thus has various or districts have representatives in that governing body. But then at the national level, there's another hierarchy which terminates in the president. To say all of that, we might well note that there are many religious bodies who have a similar kind of government. There's a hierarchy in place 
where maybe several churches are underneath the control of a particular bishop, but various bishops then serve under a superintendent, and various superintendents serve under yet another higher officiating person. Notice then the comparison is easy to make. The civil government and these various religious bodies' governments seem to have a great similarity in place. As you and I open the pages of the New Testament, again, our interest is not in man's devices, not in man's presentations, but what does the holy God of heaven have to say about the government of his body, the blessed body of Christ? We may well begin to note as follows. One can read with great intensity the entire 27 books of the New Testament, all 260 chapters, every single word in the 7,957 verses. And yet out of all of them there shall be not the slightest reference of any form of hierarchical government in the church of our Lord. To say that another way, the only design that one reads of is this. Every congregation is independent of every other. A word that you will often encounter to describe that state is a word that I've placed on, on the wall. It's the word autonomous, or in noun form autonomy. That means that every congregation is such that it is not controlled by either another congregation or any group within any other congregation. Every congregation stands independently alone in its stance before the God of heaven. That is a dramatic distinction between often what men have proclaimed and what men have set forth. Note the apostolic examples to that same end. You and I read with great fervor about the nature of, say, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts as well as other books we've been studying on Wednesday evening. Recall with me that Paul's great intent on one occasion was to make a collection of various Gentile congregations and to make sure that that aid was brought to the churches in the Jerusalem area. Have you ever pondered the fact that it would have been much easier if Paul had simply sent word to Corinth and said, you are responsible for collecting all of the funds in the entire Macedonian area and I'll simply come and make a brief visit and collect it. Paul did not do that. Why? Because the church in Corinth did not have authority over the church in Thessalonica or Berea or anywhere else. Paul needed to individually request as he went to those congregations the variety of their contributions. No church has authority over any other. And thus, our congregation here at Pippin, we do not make the decisions for Center Grove or for Willow Avenue or any other congregation, nor do they have impact of authority in decision-making upon us. That thought alone is very impressive, isn't it? But notice, it was a brilliant stroke of genius in the divine realm, wasn't it? Knowing that God's the author of it, that's not surprising. Consider how much more difficult it would be for congregations in mass to drop into false doctrine and to follow apostasy if they each were independent. After all, if one person were controlling a lot of congregations and if that person were failure, had failure in terms of biblical knowledge, if that person had ideas that were not right in God's sight and he imposed it upon a number of churches, he could lead many of them away into false doctrine very quickly. But if each congregation is independent, such that no one in person controls a lot of them, 
then we understand it would be much more difficult for false doctrine to get a foothold and for it to proceed to take over men in mass. We see the autonomous nature of the church is something that must be respected. It's the only pattern revealed in the New Testament. But what's more, as we look at some passages in a moment, we will discuss in great earnestness the nature of how that is taught. But consider this with me as we begin then with the specifics of the church. We have already discussed that Jesus is the one and only head. There is no head of the church on earth. There is no single individual or group of men who have the controlling power. In fact, might we even denote the following. Jesus himself, it is described as follows. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, there the apostle Paul so powerfully stated, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Indeed, as Jesus is the head of the church, we can well appreciate then that the doctrine of the church was settled a long, long time ago. The head determined it. Doesn't that cast a great interesting reflection upon that situation today when men may convene themselves into a convention or convene themselves into some kind of legislating body and decide what the church should teach or should not teach or to decide some specific doctrinal matter of the church? Friends, that's an insult to the God of heaven. For the doctrine of the church was settled 20 centuries ago. It was completed when you and I are opening the blessed word of God and it was finished then. In fact, didn't Jude say that it was the doctrine that was once for all time delivered to the saints in Jude verse 3. And thus, those who think today that they still have legislative bodies and that they can determine the doctrine of the church are sorely mistaken. Jesus determined that doctrine Notice the statement our Savior made in John 12, verse 48. On that occasion Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Our Savior didn't say the word that men may decide. The word that conventions may dictate, that's what will judge you in the last day. The Lord never said that. Men may, but the Lord didn't. He said the word that I have spoken. That is that which shall sit in judgment upon you and me. And no wonder Paul could say to the Romans in Romans 2.16 that in that day men shall be judged by my gospel. The gospel it will be serving as the standard on that day of judgment, will it not? To say these things challenges them to ask, given that Christ is the head of the church, has he delegated any aspect of that authority to humans in any form? As we study the New Testament, we will find, and as I note there on the next point, the answer is an overwhelming yes. For the New Testament, we have record and mention of gentlemen, men who are called elders. But that isn't the only name that is utilized. In fact, one of the first points to appreciate, even as was read a moment ago from Philippians 1 verse 1, in every reference where elders are mentioned, they're always mentioned in the plural. And thus we easily learn that a church needs to have at least two of these men. A church needs to have more than one of these men, known as elders. Well, what is an elder and what does he do and how does he serve in the government? Well, notice in Philippians 1 verse 1, 
that he, those elders, as well as the deacons, are mentioned in light of and in the same way as those saints are. This particular one, this elder, is a part, a member of that congregation. But what's more, notice some of the names that are given to this man. The New Testament uses five different descriptions for him. We've already used the word elder. That word has the connotation or the various meaning, tends to be one of more advanced age. And as those qualifications of elders are given in 1 Timothy 3, the reasoning is easy. For he needs not be a novice, so that his faith will have time to have matured and he would be strong. But notice, in addition to being called an elder, there's also the word used of bishop. When Paul addressed those elders of the church in Ephesus, he specifically made reference to them and called them as the word bishop, but he also referred to them as presbyters or presbyteros. Those three words, when we take them together with overseer and pastor, fill in for us a tremendous degree of understanding of the work of these men, elders. We're told, in fact, that as pastors they shepherd the flock. That's what the word means. They are those who have a keen interest in the spiritual well-being of every member of that congregation. And just as a loving shepherd watches over the sheep under his care, those elders are concerned spiritually for that congregation that is within their care. No wonder it is of them stated in Hebrews 13, 17 that they watch for our souls as those who will give account thereof in the day of judgment. To that extent, as we consider the work then of those elders, we should be thankful for men who have that desire, that spiritual desire to watch over others and aid them in their journey toward heaven. As an overseer, the word means that they do have a degree of delegated authority in the church. They provide that strong biblical leadership. They provide that sense of direction in terms of the programs of the body, the programs of the church. And all the while, as we consider them, notice that never is it of them stated that they are tyrants. In fact, it's expressly stated that's not what they are in 1 Peter 5. In fact, notice a text found in 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse number 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who also am an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. As those elders then by their life set an example for others, they are not in that business for money. They are not in that business for prestige, fame, or power. Rather, Peter notes, not of constraint, but willingly, because their heart's desire and love for the God of heaven is for the souls of others to be saved. And so it is that a congregation that has these two or more men serving as elders are such that they are blessed indeed. And isn't it amazing to note that it's God's will that a congregation have those elders? As Paul gave instruction to the young man known as Titus, he stated in Titus 1 verse 5 specifically that one of the jobs, one of the tasks of Titus was this, that namely you are to appoint or ordain elders in every city as I appointed thee. 
Now notice, as that verse opened, one of the factors, one of the matters at hand was this, that he was to set in order the things that are wanting. In other words, there's something that's not complete about those congregations on the island of Crete. There's something not yet to be finished. What was it, Paul? The appointment of elders. They would have elders appointed in those congregations. And thus today, we understand again that a congregation needs to have those godly men who serve as elders and thus can lead that congregation. These verses so far have challenged us to see then God's role, God's power in terms of those elders. But look some more at some of the other verses that relate to elders as well. These spiritual leaders are those who do not have the authority to personally and by their own opinion usurp authority over Christ. We must remember Jesus is the head. These elders only have authority of what has been delegated to them by virtue of the word. For Paul is again told Titus that as he appointed those elders in Titus 1 verse 9 that they must hold fast the faithful word as it had been delivered to them. Elders are still bound by that word. They are not in a position to simply put their opinion in place, to make their own opinion as law for that body. That's the furthest thing from what the Lord had in mind. But as they are knowledgeable students of the Word of God, and they must be apt to teach, we read in the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, their knowledge of the Word will redound into a blessed environment in which men and women, boys and girls, will be drawn closer to a walk with God. To say all of that is to say that in that text of Philippians 1 verse 1, elders were a part of that church in Philippi. And we could be thankful that a part of them here too at Pippin and many other congregations that we might name. But notice that deacons were also mentioned in that church in Philippi. What may we say about deacons? One thing is certain and that is clear. The word deacon simply means a servant. That's the very meaning of the Greek term. However, it's very clear that with respect to the office of deacon, something else is also to be noted. For after all, all of us are servants of God in a general sense. All of us who are Christians are servants of God in that way. But Paul gave qualifications for the office of a deacon. And thus in his mind was a specific office which a man would occupy. And in this role, this person would be a great example for Jesus, for Paul said so. In fact, those who fulfill it appropriately would be worthy of great respect and honor, he said. We might understand that concerning those deacons, a deacon is not the same as an elder. A deacon is nowhere called an overseer, nowhere called a bishop, nowhere called a presbyter. His role is distinct and different. It may be that the first example that we see in the Bible is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and following, where there, when that difficulty arose in the church in Jerusalem, it was the apostles who in fact gave orders to select out seven men who could oversee this physical difficulty, namely the distribution to the necessities of the Grecian widows. Seven men were selected and so appointed. And so it was here that these were those who gave attention to perhaps the physical matters, whereas the apostles and others gave their attention to the word, to the characteristics of the spiritual matters perhaps somewhat more carefully. These deacons then, these elders, 
teach us that sometimes men have clouded this issue when it should never have been clouded. For example, many of the times that the word pastor is used incorrectly, the preacher is not a pastor. Though on many occasions I have been incorrectly asked, are you a pastor? And I've had to try to describe and to answer, no, I'm not. I'm not an elder. But rather, men have don't seem not to understand that point in so many instances. Those elders are those that are qualified and have by that congregation been installed into that office. The preacher fills a different position, a different role entirely. May we seek to understand more deeply and better the thought that it was God's will that his autonomous congregations have in position of leadership two or more men known as elders and also a group of deacons who could serve and aid them in the carrying out of the physical work of that body. To note these various offices, we can then ask the following question. Given that the Bible has specified this arrangement for its government, what would be made then of bodies which have a different government? Could they possibly be the church? Just as surely as we noted last Lord's Day that any group that did not begin, say, in Jerusalem, could not be the church. Or that any religious body that did not have its establishment on the day of Pentecost following the Lord's resurrection could not be the church. Would it not also be easily to say that anybody with a physical government different from that revealed in the Holy Word of God could then not possibly be that church which God established and which seeks to bring glory and honor to Him? In Ephesians 3.21 we still are able to read, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The very thought then that the churches do have a government, and we have discussed it and studied it today. Could we not conclude our lesson by maybe making these summary remarks? It's certainly the case that leadership is vital and that it is important. That leadership, whether it be in amongst ancient Israel, or whether it be in the family, or whether it be in the church, it is vital and it is essential. God has established what leadership positions there are in church, and men nowhere at any time have the liberty of adding any more positions or ignoring the ones God has established. The elders are those which you and I recognize as being set by God as leaders of his local congregations. As you and I think about that nature today, we noted a moment ago that those elders are such that they watch for our souls and we are to obey them, Hebrews 13, 17. In that obedience, we understand they work among us, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 11 and 12. As they work among us here at Pippin, their desire, and of course the desire of Christians generally is for others who are not members of that body to realize the urgency of the hour and to at once obey when the opportunity is present. It may be that today there's one or more within the sound of my voice that's not a member of the body of Christ, such that to this point you have not allowed yourself to be washed clean from sin by Christ's blood. Today would be the day to accomplish that. For you see, everything's prepared and ready. You need to believe upon Jesus as the Son of God. Repent sincerely of the sins in your life. Confess His glorious name as the Messiah, the Son of God and be immersed, baptized in water for the, for the forgiveness of sins. If we could be of any assistance in doing that, it would be our honor. 
If you have, though, been become a member, but you haven't been faithful, remember that church at Ephesus was told to return to their first love, or else the candlestick would be taken from them. You individually need to return to your first love. And if we could do that by prayer, as God has specified, on your repentance and confession, we'd be happy to aid you. If any of this is a need of your life today, will you not make that known in a public way and come even while together we stand while we sing?